Okay. <laughs> oh, won't work over there. All right, let's go to Isaiah chapter 43. We're going <clears> to <throat> jump in to, uh, to what the Lord has for us. Now, remember, we finished the section at chapter 39. Now, the Lord focuses attention on describing the servant of the Lord. And he's going to use two groups as his servant. One group is Israel. The other group is Messiah. I shouldn't say group, person. One group is, and you can always tell by the pronouns. We'll see it as we work our way through. Um, but as we, as we go, he's describing this, uh, this attitude of what does a servant of God look like? What does he do? How does it all work? Um, and mixed into that is the idea of the incomparable nature of God. That God is... Most often it's described as God is the only God. But the idea is there's nobody like God. There's no being like the Lord God Almighty. So we start in Isaiah 43, talking about describing initially Israel's redemption. And it starts with this idea. Okay, so Israel's going to be redeemed. Why? Well, he says that you were, because you were created for the glory of God. We look at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So the idea of being created by God, well, what does that, what does that do for us? How does that help our attitudes as servants? How does that help us in, in recognizing uh, the Lord's redemption? And one of the first things we, we, we want to try to drill out of it is the idea that it removes fear takes fear out of the equation you were created by god god has a purpose for you you have been redeemed and it has his promise there's three promises in this verse one i have redeemed you two i have called you by name three you are mine so i have redeemed you means i have purchased you i have bought you you've been paid for with a price God had redeemed Israel, the same language is used, of the believers in the church. So, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. The idea is being called out from among the nations. So you have the nations, you have the idea, if you looked at all of mankind, God is saying of Israel, but I called you out by name. I singled you out, I I want you, I chose you, I picked you so he has these promises, and the purpose of those promises is so that we don't have to walk in fear of the circumstances we find ourselves in, right? Tomorrow, I have no idea what, what's going to happen. But I don't have to be afraid of whatever it is, because these things are still true. He has redeemed me, he has called me, and I belong to him. So no matter what it is, no matter what the, the situation or the struggle God has or is providing for me. He is the energon we saw on Sunday. Energon is the word for, he's the power, the energy that we need to get through whatever hill we got to climb, whatever wall we got to knock down, whatever thing we got to go through. He's the energy that does it, not me. So I don't have to be afraid. I can trust in him. There's no other God like him. We can also understand that he removes uh, fear by being created by God because of his presence. Look what it says in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, what's that next phrase? I will be with you. So you ever feel like you're going to drown? 
<laughs> by the circumstances of life. He's saying, look, when you uh, pass through the waters, when you cross that Jordan, when you walked across the Red Sea, when you face the floods of the enemy, the Antichrist, one of the things it says about the Antichrist is, is his desire to destroy the people of God spews out of his mouth like a flood. Well, it's, it's probably not talking about a flood. It's probably talking about persecutions, attacks, different events. But for the people going through it, it feels like you're in a flood, right? And you're being swept away by something that's outside of your control. But the Lord says, we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I'll be with you. I'll be with you when you pass through the waters, through the rivers. They will not overwhelm you. They will not overwhelm you. You're, you're not going to be destroyed by the rivers. By the waters. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. What's that refer back to? Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The idea that uh, God didn't save them from the fire, but what did he do? They didn't get burned, right? They went in, but who was with them? The Lord was with them, right? So the same idea. Look, we don't have to be afraid because he's promising his presence. The flames shall not consume you. Why? Because, or for, in verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Three different descriptions of who God is. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am the Becoming One. I'm everything you need. I am the Holy One of Israel. The One that makes Israel holy. Israel's not holy on her own. She doesn't holy because of what she does. She's holy because of who is in her midst, the Holy One of Israel, and ultimately your Savior, right? So we need a Savior. We can't accomplish it on our own. We need Him. He's our Savior, the Holy One, the Lord God Almighty. He is the Becoming One. It says, uh, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. I give Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. And that's the idea of being redeemed. Being redeemed means you've been bought. You're created, and God says you're mine, but then you're lost, right? Through sin, we're separated from God, and then we're redeemed. God pays. Now, all those things, when God redeemed Israel, who did he charge it to? What do you think? Because there's one event that occurs, right, that saves mankind. That's going to come a couple thousand years later, let's say, in Jesus Christ. So what God is doing with the nation of Israel and those for whom he redeems is he's charging their account. He can still impute righteousness the same way, but he's charging the account to a future event. What's the future event? Jesus' death on the cross, right? The, the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I bought you. I bought you from Egypt. I paid, I'm, right? I'm char it's charged to... Jesus' account is being accomplished. Uh, the same idea in the, in the offering system, right? When they would come and bring an offering, sacrificial system. That sacrifice didn't do anything. The Bible says very clearly that the blood of lambs and goats does not purge sin. What, what is it that purges the sin? It was the blood of Jesus Christ, which the blood of the bulls and goats and lambs and offerings that were given was a picture of. Uh, uh, a, an illustration of the redemption ultimately that God's going to do. He says, because, why has he redeemed you? Why has he purchased you? Because you are precious in my eyes. Ultimately, why? Because I love you. 
You are precious. You matter to me. You matter to me. Uh, you're honored. And I love you. So I give men in return for you. People in exchange for your life. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west. And I will gather you. Now for the nation, if think back to the time of Isaiah. They just have been delivered from Assyria. But God, we're going to see tonight. God's going to warn them. There's an exile coming. Your hearts are still bent toward uh, idolatry. You're not faithful. You're going to go into exile. But the promise is there every single time. Even though you go into exile, I will bring your offspring from the east. No matter where the people get scattered, God says, I don't lose them. No matter where they get scattered in life, no matter what place they get taken to, God says, I haven't lost them. I'll bring them back. I'll bring them back. I'll draw them right from the east and the west and bring them back to the land. So he says, I will be with you. We don't have to be afraid because he has faithful love for us, right? God, God's love is faithful. He's not fickle like ours. You know, one day we love and the next day we don't, especially these days. Somebody's in love, tomorrow they're not in love. We don't, we don't really comprehend faithful love, but God does. He says, again, you're precious. I love you. Matter to me. You matter to me. Deuteronomy 23.5, listen to what God said. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord God loved you. He cares about you. Jeremiah 31. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They will be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. How long is everlasting love? Does that stop? So if I call it everlasting love, then it doesn't go away. That's, that's the Lord's faithful, eternal love. We don't have to be afraid. We, he's created us. He's with us. He loves us. And he has a plan. Look at verse 6. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he said, look, I'm going to draw you. He's talking about Israel. I'm going to draw you into the land. No matter where you're scattered, I can bring you back. I'll bring you back to the promised land. I'll gather them together again. So I have a plan to give you the land. But the purpose of the plan is what? What's the purpose? What is the chief end? The ultimate end is the glory of God. God's, he, he says right here, everyone who's called by my name, who I created, why? For my glory. Whom I formed and made. To glorify God. I've been asked before, it seems, it almost seems like uh, an egotistical statement. It certainly would be from you or I if I said, I want you to do this for my glory. Unless you really are the ultimate. If you are the ultimate, then that's not egotistical, that's that's how it ought to be. The glory to the, the, the one who is, has the value uh, to be able to make that statement. And that is the Lord God Almighty. Which moves to the idea, right, of his incomparable nature. There's no one like him. He is the one most to be desired. 
most to be valued. When we live a life for the glory of God, reaching out to touch God, and, and uh, uh, that He's our purpose, that He's our chief end, whatever it is that the Lord has for us, when we live our lives that way, as we move forward in that, in that idea, um, we just want to know that, 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 that glory is uh, not only relatable and, and achievable and accomplishable, but that it is part of the purpose. Part of that purpose, that He is indeed the, the key. We won't be disappointed. We're not going to get to heaven and go, Oh, oh, I thought you were so much more than that. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that He is incomparable. In fact, that's exactly where the chapter turns in verse 8. In verse 8, He says, Bring out the peoples who are blind, but have eyes, who are deaf and have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. <laughs> who among them can declare this and show us the former things? So who, who among all the people, those who have eyes but can't see, meaning they can't see like God sees, those who have ears and can't hear, meaning they can't hear what God hears, they're not like Him. There's no one like Him. He's incomparable. And He says, gather them all and have them tell you how the former things are going to work out. Tell me about how all those things that occurred in the past are going to come to fruition. How, what was their purpose? Where, where, where is history moving? What is being accomplished in it? This is what the Lord is saying. He says, let them bring their witnesses and prove that they are right. Let them hear and say, it's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand I am He. So in the, in the Greek, these are the same phrases that Jesus Christ would often use. Seven times, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus used this phrase. He would say, before Abraham was what? I am. Same, same, this is the Hebrew, but that's the Greek. Ego I me. I am. I am. The Yahweh. I am. It's a, it's part of the, uh, tetragrammaton or the, the name of God. God is saying, I am He. I am God. Uh, before me, no God was formed. Bef- there was nothing. And we go back, if we could go back to the dawn of all time before anything was, God was. The Bible says in John 1 1, in the beginning, which means back beyond the vanishing point. The vanishing point for for the Jewish person was to think, okay, I can think back, like maybe some of you have memories when you were a kid. I don't have memories when I was a kid. I'm not sure my memories work anymore. But I say I can go back and remember when I was 10, but I can't remember when I was 7. That's the vanishing point. The point in Hebrew literature was the way to say as far back as you could go and beyond was to say past the vanishing point. Another way to say that was in the beginning. Before there was a beginning. Back past the vanishing point, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, face to face with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ, our example. So here, the Lord is saying, look, there's nobody before me. I am. Everything that began to exist has a cause, but God did not begin to exist. He's eternal, meaning He goes back forever and forward forever. He's eternal. 
You and I are not eternal. We have a beginning. We were created at some point in time. We were created. But God, He is outside of time. He's beyond time. He's bigger than time. I don't know uh, a, a better way to say it. But He says, There was no God formed before me, no, nor shall there be any after me. There is nobody like me. I am it. We can't go... That's why it's so difficult when we talk about doctrines like the Trinity and we try to find an example in nature. Well, the problem is you're trying to find an example in nature when God says, there's nothing like me anywhere. There was nothing like me before me and there's nothing like me after me. I'm it. I'm the only Yahweh. There's no other Yahwehs you can look up. There's no other pictures you can go find in a dictionary. I'm it. So we go by what the Lord has laid out for us. So we see... The incomparable nature of God. He is preeminent. There's no one like Him. And then he describes not only His preeminence in His, in His being incomparable, but also that He is the only Savior. Look at verse 11. I am the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Beside me there is no Savior. So let me ask you, this is not a trick question, who is the Savior? Jesus. Is Jesus Yahweh? Yes. Why? Because there's no Savior beside who? Yahweh is the only Savior. That's it. Jesus can't be a man. Jesus can't. He has to be Yahweh. Or He can't be the Savior. Far too many scriptures that call Jesus our great God and Savior. I think that's Titus 3.15. So we, we, we look at it and we say here, I am the Lord and nobody like me. I am incomparable. And there is no one else who saves but me. I'm the only one who can save. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. Jason just taught this out in Kimberly. There's no salvation by any other name, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Yehoshua. Jesus. Which means what? Yahweh saves. What his name means. Yahweh saves. He is the Savior. We know God's incomparable because there's nobody else who can do that. There's nothing else. We maybe can become some measure of a, a moral person by human standards, by doing our best to keep the law or following somebody else's teachings in a variety of different ways. But you can only be saved one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many men come to the Father? No one. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. He is what we have to be clothed in. He is the vehicle through which we approach God. He is the one by which we approach the Father. Then we see in verse 12 is providence. Look, he says, I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. He says, I told you, I declared, saved, and proclaimed. I told you I was going to save you, and I saved you. How many times has God done that in the history of Israel? When they were in Egypt, did God say, hey, I'm going to save you, I'm going to deliver you, follow Moses? Even when you were in a, between a rock and a hard place, <coughs> with your back to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army descending on you, and you were all saying, No, we're dead, we're dead. 
God said, no, you're not. I will save you. Over and over in their history. In fact, in Isaiah, just earlier, right? In like beginning at chapter 36 through 39, we have the deliverance from Assyria. You remember, right? The armies of Assyria waiting outside the gates of Jerusalem one night and the next day they're gone. Who did that? God did. I told you I would save you. And I have accomplished it. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God, no idolatry among you. And you are my witnesses. You know, declares the Lord, that I am God. I have the power to save. Also, henceforth, he says, I am he. There's nobody like me. The incomparableness of God. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? So if God says something's going to happen, how does it work out? Is it a maybe? Or is it done? So so that's what the Lord says. If I've done it, nobody can turn back my hand. Nobody can stop what I've accomplished. Nobody can make it not happen. If the Lord says, like in a little while, if the Lord says you're going into exile, what's going to happen? You're going into exile. You remember those days when you was a kid and maybe you'd done something wrong and your parents came to you and said, you know, you're on restriction. Maybe that was the, the good one. Better than the beating, I don't know. But they come to you and say, maybe your school trip, you have a school trip, everybody's going to, to the beach or Disneyland or someplace fun. But you did something wrong and mom and dad say, you ain't going. Well, our earthly parents, maybe they were strict, maybe they weren't. Maybe they... They gave in and said, okay, you can go. But when God says you're going, you're going. If he says, I'm doing it, this is happening. In fact, it's, it's so emphatic in Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, stop praying for them. They're going to exile. <coughs> I'm not changing. They're going. They're going to go into exile. God says, if I... If I have made the decision, none can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Listen to the description he's given in the last several verses. He's your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, your Creator, and your King. And he's going to emphasize that in verse 14 and 15. Look, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon. And I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So everything he's been describing previously culminates in verses 14 and 15 in this incredible two-verse set talking about God going to judge Babylon, who doesn't exist yet. Babylon's not the boss. Assyria is. The children of Israel are not in exile. That's future. That's probably somewhere in a neighborhood of a hundred years. Still future. And and when they go to exile, how long are they there? Do you guys know? So the exile is 70 years. So that means what God is talking about right here is about 170 years away. When you go to exile, just know this. I'm going to bring Babylon down. And Babylon's going to be brought down uh, two weeks. We're going to be in Isaiah 55, or sorry, in Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, we're introduced to a servant 
named Cyrus, who's not born yet, who will be the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, who will conquer Babylon. And God says, Cyrus is my servant, who I will send to bring down Babylon in a bloodless battle. Most of the people living in Babylon don't even know they're conquered for three days. They just all of a sudden, how come there's all these Medo-Persians running around? I don't know. Let's hang out. So they, he takes over. Cyrus takes over. Why is Cyrus his servant? Because Cyrus is the guy who's going to look at Israel and say, hey, if you want to go back to the land, you can go back. God said, you're going to go. You're going to face exile. Nobody can turn my hand. But know this, one day I'm going to bring your kids back. Seventy years, if I went in at 50, 70 years later, I'm not going back, right? I'm dying in Babylon. What about my kids? Well, God says he's going to bring them back to the land. God has them. God has a purpose. God has a plan. So just look at all the things that we've been looking at that he, that he describes himself as, right? The Lord, Yahweh, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel. We talked about that earlier. Uh, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. That's a new one. <clears throat> I'm your King. The preferred form of government is not socialism or democracy or capitalism or whatever ism you want. It is a theocracy. When God is king, that's the preferred government. When he rules. When will we finally see peace on earth? When Jesus Christ comes, puts his feet on the ground. There will be a flash of a battle. And then there will be what? Peace on earth. Perfect peace. He's king. Jesus Christ will rule. He'll rule with a rod of iron, meaning that if there's no bend, this is how it is. This is, it's a, it's a straight, hard, perfect line. You don't have to go, I wonder what I'm supposed to do. Nope. It's a rod of iron. If you don't, if you don't bow your head far enough, you hit it with your head. And you will bow. No. How many knees will bow? That sounds like everybody, right? How many tongues will confess? Oh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is King. That he is the Lord God Almighty. So we see God promising here to defeat Babylon, who's not a power yet. And we'll see in chapter 45 the way he's going to do it. Then in 16, he also going to, he's going to give, he's given examples. That's a future example of Babylon. Now he's going to talk about uh, Egypt. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched <coughs> like a wick. Now there's a couple interesting things here. Reference is probably to Egypt, probably to the division of the Red Sea. God makes a path, right, through the mighty waters. He makes a way for the children of Israel to cross. At the same time, he makes a way to wipe out the chariot, horse, army, and warrior. They can't follow, right? Egyptians tried to follow. They couldn't come through. God wiped it out. So he's saying, look, in the future, I'm going to take care of Babylon, just like in the past, I took care of Egypt. And then in verse 18, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. For behold, I am doing a new thing. I'm doing something else. Something you didn't think about. A lot of the prophets are going to describe the things of, that God was doing from, from the event of the exile forward. Because there had been nothing like the exile before. 
So there were times where they were subservient during the time of the judges, but never like the exile. The exile is going to be a thing where he says, look, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. So just trust me. I'm doing a new thing. The exile is going to point us straight to the new covenant, bringing us to the, the, the new work that God's going to do through Christ, which he's going to describe as, I am going to forgive your sins and your iniquity I will remember no more. So these are the, this is the thing. The incomparable God is, is going to discover. He's going to accomplish. He said, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? You can't, you, you can't quite understand it. I will make a way in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. What's he saying? I'm going to make a way where there is no way. I'm going to make a way where there is no way. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, to my elect. <clears throat> Jesus said, one of his I am statements, he said, I am living water. Anybody who thirsts, come to me, and I will give him drink, and you will what? Thirst. Never thirst again. Thirst no more. Satisfy. He's the one who is able to satisfy our thirst. Our thirst is a picture of that which we need to live. We can't live without water. We can't live without Jesus Christ, without the sacrifice that he's going to accomplish for me. In verse 21, he says, Now the people who I am formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So the point of this new thing God's doing through the exile, bringing them back into the land, preparing a way, getting ready for that new covenant, the delivery of Messiah coming through to deliver the people. For what purpose? That the people whom I formed for myself would declare my praise. To find in Him their source of joy. To find in Him the source of praise. To find in Him their source of strength. To find in Him their source of love. To find in Him their healer. To find in Him their peace. Ultimately, to find in Him what His name declares. Everything you need. It's all in Him. It is all with Him that they might declare my praise. So now he shifts in verse 22 and he says, Now in light of the incomparable nature of God, in light of the fact that you've been created by Him, you don't have to be afraid because God has a purpose and a plan. He's working and shaping in your life. In light of these things, the next phrase is, Why don't you call on Him? Why, 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 aren't, you, why aren't you calling out? Verse 22, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me. I'm so tired of God. Can you imagine? I'm weary of you. I'm weary of your requirements. I'm weary of your prophets. I'm weary of your word. I'm weary of all this stuff. The Lord says, why haven't you called on me? Why, why are you weary of me? What, what haven't I given you? I actually had somebody a few months ago tell me that God had never done anything for them. Well, the Lord's never done anything for me. Man, you sure about that? Yeah, about a week ago, he hit me up if he could use my Kindle account to read a book I had he wanted to be able to read. 
So I said, sure, you can use my Kindle account to read that book. Just remember that the God you don't believe in just did something for you. That's not how it works. When the, when the sun come up in the morning, that don't count. The air in your lungs, that don't count. The life that you have, that don't count. Does nothing good count? Only, only the fact that he hasn't done what you wanted him to do. That's what you mean, right? He hasn't done what I wanted him to do. Why are you weary of me? There's two sections of scripture that, <coughs> that describe this. One was in the beginning of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, it says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our Lord, your people of Gomorrah. Now he's talking to Jerusalem. He's just describing them as Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Why are you coming? Why are you going through the motions? Bring no more vain or useless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. A new moon, Sabbath, those are feast days. God's saying, uh, why are you celebrating the feast? Why are you doing the things that, that are described in, in the word that are part of my worship? You're, you're not, you don't care about me. You're just punching a, you're just punching a card. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. You're guilty. Your sin is upon you and there's no repentance. But yet you're just going through the motions, painting the picture. You're dead men's, uh, your whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, right? So you have, you have this thing where I'm trying to look good on the outside so all my neighbors we bring a sacrifice that's what we do so you're going through the motions but there's no repentance there's no desire to know God no desire to honor God the same exact thing comes up in Malachi Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 Malachi says a son honors his father and a servant his master if then I am a father where is my honor And if I am a master, where is my fear? And we talked about that on Sunday. Fear and trembling. What is that? That is humility and submission. Where where is that? Where is that humility and submission? That's how you would be to a master if you were a slave. No. The Lord of hosts, uh, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? He says, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Isn't that evil? They're giving God garbage. I found roadkill out on the road, so I brought it for a sacrifice. Does that sound like a sacrifice? What was the point of a sacrifice? David would say, I will not give the Lord anything that costs me nothing. What's the point of a sacrifice? That it was a 
sacrifice. It cost you something. It all acknowledges that, that it costs God something to forgive you your sins, right? Doesn't, doesn't it cost God something to forgive you? Doesn't it, doesn't it cost Him? Wasn't there a price associated? You're, you're giving garbage. You're giving the lame or the sick. He says in, in uh, uh, verse 8, Present that to your governor. Will he accept you? Go take that to your king, your earthly king. Go say, hey, I come to give you a gift of a blind, uh, lame lamb. How's that going to work out? What do you think would happen in those days? You might not get out of the presence of the king. He may not think you're funny. Give that to the God. Your worldly people won't accept this, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9. Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Oh, if there's one of you who would just shut the doors to the temple and stop this madness. Why are you offering garbage? Are we supposed to bring strange fire before the Lord? In the scripture, to say, yeah, bring whatever fire you want. This, it's cool. There were two guys who did it. They brought strange fire. You remember what happened? They died. Don't bring strange fire. How will God be worshipped? The way he says. Jesus said the Father wants people to worship him. How? In spirit and? Does the truth matter? Come worship him in spirit and in truth. Don't bring strange fire. Don't don't bring a bunch of garbage. What's going on? Somebody should shut the door so this would stop. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. So one day, every knee will what? Every tongue will confess, right? He's saying one day, everyone's going to know that I am the Lord. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is the food, can be despised. Ah, oh, God don't care what you give. But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence. So you thought I was kidding about roadkill, right? Oh, I went out and a wolf got one of my lambs. I got half of it left. I'm going to go offer that to God. This And this is what you bring for an offering? Should I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat, listen to God's charge, who has a male in his flock and promises it and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Instead, he gives the Lord roadkill. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among all the nations. But they don't think of him as a great king. They don't honor him. They don't call on him. They're weary of him. Oh, we got to go. It's time for that whole sacrifice thing to happen again. So what will the Lord do? Verse 24. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sin. So you won't bring to me the things that are that are required. You won't... <laughs> do what you will do to for the other idols even. But you have burdened me with your sin. You have worried, 
wearied me with your iniquities. Now listen to what God says. What's God going to do? I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. So God still says, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to blot out your transgression for my own sake. You are my people. I'll blot out your transgression. I will not remember your sins. But then in verse 26, he says, So put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. See, it's biblical. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. He gives them a history lesson. Your first father sinned. What is the one thing we know about Israel's history? Well, the one thing we know about Israel's history is it's a history of failure. Not to say they never had successes, but overall, there's always a failure, right? There's always a failure. There's always a failure. Why? Because they're broke. They can't do it apart from God. They can't accomplish it. So he's saying, your first father sinned, your mediators transgressed against me, the priests have sinned, they've fallen short. <laughs> Therefore, I will profane your princes in the sanctuary, and I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. What is their future? God says, you don't have to be afraid. I am the incomparable God. I am your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I'm the one who's going to call you back. But you don't honor me. Your heart is far from me. You don't seek to know me. You don't want to love me. You give me the garbage. I'm the, I'm the hind thought. I'm the final thought. I'm the late thought. I'm not on your mind whatsoever. Your history is a history of failure, of stumbling and falling. I'm going to forgive your sin. But I am going to destroy Jacob and Israel. I'm going to wipe out Jacob. That usually is the part of the nation of Israel that is synonymous with her failure. I'm going to wipe out that failure and make Israel a reviling. What's he saying? You're going to go to exile. You're going to Babylon. He already told us earlier, what's he going to do to Babylon? He'll, he'll bring Babylon down. He'll bring them back into the land, right? God does never... God never brings his judgment on his people without saying that he's going to still take care of them. But sometimes you still need a whooping. No? If every time you look at your kid and you say, if you do that again, I'm going to whoop you, and then you don't do it, you have done nothing. That's not discipline. If you say, if you continue to do that, you get a whooping and you bring the whooping, did, did it change the fact that you love them? Despite what your kids said to you, when they said, I hate you, mommy, or daddy, or whatever, however it worked. <coughs> but you knew, I do this because exactly what the Bible says, because I love you. Because by being corrected, their failure gets cut off, their idolatry is dealt with, and the children of Israel grow. The way is prepared for Messiah, and all the nations of the earth are blessed when he comes. They're blessed through him. That provision for salvation to go to the nations, that all comes 
through Jesus Christ. So when we look at it, it's important. When we look at, a lot of times we go through the prophets and we're like, oh, it's just all destruction. Don't forget the first 26 verses. They weren't destruction. There, I'm going to forgive you. There, I'm going to be with you. If I put you in the flood, what did God say? I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. If I put you in the fire, what did God say? I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. I will save you. I will redeem you. But you have to get, you have this consequence has to come. You have to face this punishment. I need to purge this Jacob out of you. Don't we all have a Jacob in us? Right? A sin nature that just constantly wants to rebel against God. Don't you want God to deal with that? We all do until we find out how he does it. Oh, that means he's going to make me suffer. Doggone it, I don't want to do that. But here's the one thing we know about human nature. You learn more in suffering than in years of plenty. They did a study one time through church, just random. Here's a random uh, fact that you, you never need to know. But they did a study uh, uh, through the church about looking at offerings. When are offerings the best? When are offerings the worst? The best offerings happen in recession. People give more when the economy is bad. People give less when the economy is good. Why? Because when the economy is good, I want more stuff. When the economy is bad, I'm thinking more about God. I'm thinking more about that relationship. I... I need you, Lord. There's not enough. But all of a sudden, when there's enough, doesn't the Bible say the same thing? Lord, don't give me so much that I forget about you, or too little so that I steal, but give me this day my daily bread. Give me what I... That's, that's how we are. That's our nature. Can't argue with our nature. That's what our nature does. God knows it, and He knows how to pull out from us what he knows is in there. You and I may not know it's there, but he knows it's there. And he'll get it out. And when he gets it out, not only will you be amazed at what God does through you, but God will be glorified because of it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity we have to study your word. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you for beautiful weather and opportunities. Thank you for all the the youth workers and guys that are out there at youth camp, I pray your hand to be upon them, your blessing, Lord God, that you <clears throat> would work in and through them. God, that you would uh, just uh, just show yourself uh, mighty to save throughout the camp, Lord, that they have together. And Lord, I pray that uh, even as they, they travel home later this week, that they'd have safe traveling mercies. God, I pray as we go from this place, we declare, God, I just bow the knee now. I don't need any correction, Lord. I just want to do what you say. I want to follow you. I want to be your servant. Your servant says, I hear. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I'll do what you say. I'll be who you've called me to be. Lord, may we just be your men and women affecting our culture, the people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our are the people we associate with, that we would take the truth of your word to them. 
and allow you, God, to do a work in their life, even as you've done one in ours. Lord, we pray you be glorified and magnified in this place, for we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.